welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Questions asking how long appear in the Bible about 60 times. In most cases, the questioner is asking how long until God steps into a situation. We ask the same today from both our personal and societal pain. Would it surprise us to find he's already there? A.J. Sherrill, parish pastor of Trinity Grace Church, Chelsea in New York City, shares what's on his heart with this message entitled, Cries from the Soul, which covers Psalm 13. Thank you for joining us today. And I have a great privilege of introducing A.J. Sherrill. A.J. is pastoring a church up in New York, Grace, Chelsea, Grace Trinity, Grace Trinity Chelsea, there's a Trinity Grace. Trinity Grace? Trinity Grace Chelsea up in New York City. We're so glad to have him here with us. He was here on staff for a while, went up to New York to make an impact there, and God's using him and the church in a remarkable way to begin doing a work, a deep work in the city of New York. So AJ, why don't you come on up? I'm going to pray for you, brother. Last uh, hour, I prayed for his family, his wife, uh, Elena, and his daughter, Eloise, who is 14 months. 14 months, yeah. We, I prayed for them last go around, for him as a husband and him as a father. I want to pray for you, brother, as a church pastor. Let's go around and bring the word to us, okay? Thanks. 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 Uh, Lord, I do lift up my brother. It's been so sweet just to have him here uh, today already uh, bringing the word. And I'm believing and knowing uh, that you'll once again break it open through it, through him to us. So pray, Lord, for this moment. But more than that, I just want to lift up his, his work in New York City. Uh, as you would know, Lord, not an easy task, not an easy calling, not an easy city to do your business in. So, Lord, I pray for him specifically for strength, for wisdom, for courage, for discernment, for loving, tender kindness, for him to pastor and shepherd well, for the right people to come around, for you to hedge back those who would be um, uh, wanting to do harm, wanting to uh, just do bad business with the church there, Lord, that he would just be able to minister in a deep, rich way, that the gospel would flow in rich and unusual ways, not just this day, but in the days going forward, Lord, that your light might shine. So thank you so much in advance for that, and thank you for him being here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Randy. What a joy it is to be back. It's been a few years since I've taught here, and um, I, you know, when I reflect on this community, uh, pretty quickly, there's a, there's a passage in Acts chapter 19 that comes up for me um, at the, really at the top when I think about Perimeter Church. And what happens in that point is Paul basically enters into Ephesus, which is this like amazing little port town. It's not really that little. It's sort of like the place where all of culture is beginning to really come together within the Roman Empire and really spread culture into Asia Minor as a whole. And in this port town, Paul goes in and begins to experience pretty quickly opposition from both the synagogue and society. So he's got these sort of like two fronts coming against him. And so what does he do? He takes 12 people and he sets up a spiritual formation center that's known as the Hall of Tyrannus or the School of Tyrannus. And the scripture says in those first 10 verses that they committed themselves for two years to be formed into the ways and teachings of Jesus. And then the next verse in verse 10, which is profound, it says this, in all of Asia heard the gospel. Just this really dynamic moment, a really crucial moment in church history. And so the reason I think of you guys when I, when I read that passage is I'm not sure if you're aware of the profound impact this church is having on the world because of local discipleship. I think sometimes 
the most missional move that we can make in our time is to make disciples locally. You know, I think we often think of like, let's go there and, and, and we need that, it's fantastic. However, that usually omits the local role of forming people into the image of Jesus through the gospels. And I just, I just when I think about this community, I think, wow, it's just an amazing, amazing example uh, of a community that's not going after entertainment, but is really going after forming people into the image of Jesus. And so thank you for your commitment to follow Jesus and faithfulness to the gospel. It truly has impacted my church in New York, and I know so many churches in the world. Let's begin this way. Let's begin by turning our minds toward ancient Rome. It's around the year 200, and one of Rome's 10 formal persecutions has just broke out again. Um, Emperor uh, Septimus Severus is the emperor at this time, and it's a persecution against those who call themselves followers of the way it was called in the first century. Um, We know it today as as Christianity, as, as followers of Jesus, as Christians. The persecution, it begins to reach very far and wide into northern Africa at this point, into a city called Carthage. And in Carthage, there's an affluent family there and a woman named Vivia Perpetua. And Vivia Perpetua comes from this affluent family and she begins to confess Christ as Lord, which is a really troublesome confession because if Christ is Lord, guess who isn't? Caesar. And that'll get you killed around this time. And so that's a fascinating confession that she has, one that the emperor at this time is wanting to put down, especially those that confess Christ as Lord, who are of of affluent status, because we certainly don't want the affluent beginning to spread ideas, because what if it catches on and it's not just the poor, but it's the affluent, it's all the sort of social stratums of society. It's a really fascinating thing. And so her family at this point is freaking out. Hearing of this, and wanting to make a public example of her, the empire takes her into custody. Court hearings follow, family passions flared, and her father came to visit her and said this. He kept pleading with her these words, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother, Think of your aunt, think of your child. Give up your pride. Worship the emperor or you will destroy all of us. But Perpetua would not yield. She kept saying, I am a Christian. And thus she was led off to her death in the amphitheater. History records it like this. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. And then she does something very disruptive. She begins to sing a psalm. I can't help but think that it was a psalm of lament. And so this day we're going to explore a psalm of lament because I think the psalms offer a kind of salve in the midst of anxiety and despair that has seemed to be sort of the continual thread that's woven through this morning so far. From the songs to even the way Randy led us a little bit earlier, it just seems that that's the thread of which God's bringing us together to really get into this day. And and so when Randy uh, asked me to teach on this, or asked me to teach a few weeks ago, he said, you know, I just, we're in a series with guest preachers where we just want you to share what's on your heart. And this has been something this summer as our community has been journeying through the Psalms has been really dear to my heart simply because I think particularly when we come to Psalms of Lament, 
I think when we get into those sorts of psalms of sorrow, um, I feel that I wonder how many of us, if you grew up in the church, grew up in a sort of environment that prepared you for the long haul. You know, I even love what was just shared about Gold Rush, that it's an event and discipleship is how we equip the formation of God depositing God's self through the Holy Spirit in us and now growing into what it means to be in Christ. I love how discipleship is how we begin to do that by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a church, uh, as I know many of you did, uh, and my experience was mostly fantastic. However, I would say that I grew up hearing so little on the topic of pain, of tragedy, of loss, and how to actually hold the amazing claims of the greatness of God, goodness, faithfulness of the gospel, with despair and anxiety and loss at the same time. And as I began to read the scriptures in my teenage years, I remember being astounded by how many pages, particularly of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, that are just page after page full of stories of tragedy. And when you look at the Psalms, at least the first 72 of them, what you find is that nearly half of them are pleas for deliverance. Nearly half. Pleas for God to break in and deliver. And I think the Psalms do this for us. The Psalms give us permission to feel. When you read through the Psalms, they're these honest, honest cries of the soul cries of the human heart. It's almost like when you read them, you get the idea that theology is being sort of hashed out in real time. You're watching someone try to, try to believe, trying to be faithful, trying to actually be conformed into the image of God while they're writing these things. And if we're honest, maybe if you're a little bit like me, there are times where you've been going through a very difficult season and you read the teachings of Paul in the New Testament, let's just use that as, as an example, and you think, you know, that's great for you, Paul. That's great. I'm so glad you could be positive about your suffering and reframe it in such a hopeful way. But like, I'm not there yet. I'm sort of processing the force of my difficult circumstance in real time. And I hope to land where you did, but I'm not quite sure how this is gonna shake out. I think that is often at least my experience, to which the Psalms give us permission to feel. It doesn't validate every feeling we feel, of course. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of Scripture, which has been used by God generation after generation to transform human hearts into the image of Jesus. A reading from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? Hang on to that. And have sorrow in my heart all day long. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken, but I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Lord, we join that which was written from old, and would you make it fresh in our time, in the present, that we would have a hopeful future. Lord, I pray for those that are in the midst of um, a challenging, challenging life moment in this season, that you would bring comfort, you would bring healing, restoration, you'd bring vision and understanding and perspective, that you'd bring perseverance, God, such a gift 
Would you bring that gift and impart that this morning for those that will come upon a season in the days ahead that we're not even aware of that we're about to enter? Would you refresh our memories of this psalm when we hit those moments of lament? We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. This particular psalm follows a typical structure to a prayer of lament. Um, and some of the language I would use, because I sort of geek out about this kind of stuff, is I, I, the language I would say is that this psalm walks us through the structure of there's an anguish, right? Where there's this sort of sincere, honest, real-time, no-hedging confession of how, how the psalmist is experiencing life. And then it moves into this, this ask, right? This sort of petition for deliverance, for God to sort of break through into act. And then last, it moves into a moment of action where the psalmist is responding in the midst of uncertainty, deciding to respond to God in faith despite not knowing the conclusion for this particular challenge that the psalmist is going through. And so we're going to walk through each of these, the anguish, the ask, and the action. And after each one, there's going to be a concluding call that I think is incumbent upon us in the church to really live into and by the grace of the Holy Spirit to walk out. The anguish is this. Let's begin with verse, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Now, it's summer, and in recent days, the cold has turned to warmth, the snow has given way to the sun, and the gray has turned to blue. Yet I know anytime I speak in any given congregation, there is a significant amount of people where the climate in life, no matter how warm and bright and summery it is, the climate has never felt darker, bleaker, and colder. And if there's one certainty about life, it's that at some point, if you're not there yet, we will all be in a place of desperation. That if lamentation isn't your present, it somewhere waits in the future. And that's not to be a downer this morning. That's not my attempt. But it's simply the effect of a broken yet not yet fully redeemed and restored creation that we're waiting for as the groanings of the Holy Spirit tell us in Romans that longing for creation to be completely restored. Now, and I would just stop by just offering this confession. And this confession comes out of at least a culture that I'm imbibed in in New York. Very, uh, I'm sure you can't relate to this, kind of a me-centric, egocentric, kind of like privatistic, like self-actualization culture. I'm sure you can't relate. But that's how things are in New York, let's just say. And I think in that, I would confess this. Isn't it at times frustrating serving a God whose existence doesn't seem to revolve around resolving all of my immediate tension. Isn't that a problem? It is for me, at least, where I'm entitled enough for, for God to deliver me at every moment that I ask, right? And I think that's something that, because of our sort of cultural moment, that's where we find ourselves. And often in that tension, we feel as if God has left us all to ourselves. We feel the sort of cry of feeling abandoned, forgotten, all of those things. What the Psalter teaches us is this, that the presence of tension never equals the absence of God. And we struggle to really believe this. Now, the interesting thing about it is, and it's in fact that the presence of God, and you only usually see this in the rearview mirror, that the presence of God 
is almost more available in the midst of our tension than less, and it's a paradox. And the presence doesn't always show up in the way that we might have wanted it to or exactly in the way we could control it or just name it in a moment. However, I, one of the things I hear over and over from people when they go through hard seasons and feel abandoned, often they look back and say, wow, I was actually more loved by God than I ever knew. And it's a paradox, meaning it's something that doesn't seem to be true yet is. Because there are times when life circumstances, they simply mystify us. We can't sort of control the outcome. Our finances, our talents, all of it sort of hits a ceiling. But then there are those problems that transcend that ceiling and we're kind of stuck. And we no longer can apply all of the methods we once did to find some sort of conclusion that remedies how we feel in a moment, right? And and there are times when God seems content to permit the ongoing reality of paying attention. I'll give you an example. Paul tells us from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he had this thorn in the flesh, whatever that meant, right? Um, I think it was ambiguous so that you could sort of apply it to your moment rather than it being specific. So whatever that thorn in the flesh was, we know that what Paul did was he prayed, he said three times. And I don't think that was like on his way out the door to make some tents. He, He said a little prayer. I think it basically meant he was laboring for three seasons abiding in it, petitioning God, remove the thorn in the flesh. And yet we know that the answer that God gives back is my grace is sufficient for you. And that's a struggle. There's mystery. There's paradox. Sigmund Freud once said, if you want to understand something, look closely at it when it's broken. And what we discover is that lamentation is that mysterious, paradoxical space where spiritual maturity in your life and mine either begins to flourish or it begins to fade. The psalmist speaks of soul pain. In other words, it's like this onion being opened, the layers being peeled back. It's not this sort of superficial inconvenience, but it pierces the soul. That's the sort of moment the psalmist finds himself in. And I think the psalmist, through his pain, I think this is what's happening. The psalmist is beginning to discern truly whether his relationship with God can really withstand hard times. You know, a good friend of mine once said, and I think it's true, he said, success has little to teach us after the age of 30. And he's not opposed to success. He's successful himself. But I think rightly so, he he thinks if nothing else, you discover what you really are in that moment. You discover whom you really trust. You discover really in whom you truly believe, that if you want to understand something, look closely at it when it's broken. I think our call and lament is simply this, and it's a tough one. It's to be faithful in pain. It's to be faithful in pain. That's our call in times of lament, is to be faithful in our pain. It's so challenging in the sort of time we live in where we have so many available pseudo-remedies to help alleviate the symptom but doesn't actually get into the deeper issues to fix the problem. Now, what does that look like? What what do I mean by being faithful in pain? It might look something as simply like this. And this might be all that there is for you this morning that God really had a nugget. And this might be it. It might look like this. It's just simply continuing the conversation with God. 
I'm not asking you to do gymnastics, to do some heroic feat, to march some pilgrimage through Spain. It's simply to continue the dialogue despite life's difficult circumstances. And maybe this is where you are this morning, where you are hanging on by a thread of belief to this mystery we call God, within this community we call church, to this Savior named Jesus, because everything that you seem to be experiencing in life right now seems to betray the claim that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is present, and you're just ready to chuck it. You're ready to be done with it and to move on to something else. And I'm not asking you today to feel good about your situation. That would be way too glib and easy. I'm not asking you um, to agree with it. I don't think God is either. I'm asking you to continue the conversation in faith with God, to continue the dialogue, to continue the wrestle, to continue the struggle. By the way, Israel, this sort of container word that was used for this whole entire people that walked throughout the Old Testament that then the Savior came through. Do you know what that name actually means? The name that epitomized the entire people of God in the Old Covenant, it means struggle. That somehow God knew that if you're going to walk with me in the long haul and not fade and not walk away and not reach for cheap solutions that don't really fix the soul cry of your heart, there are times where it's going to be a struggle. There are times where you're not actually going to be able to fix everything within your control. One of my professors once said that being Christian is long-term training and learning to be out of control. And that's hard, but I think that's right. At least it spoke to me. Four times, this is what the psalmist says in two verses. How long? How long? How long? How long? Which I think of as a, as a euphemism for God, what's your problem? Right? Would you act? Would you do something, God? And I think God can handle this complaint. I think this is where our spirituality goes beyond smiling and into struggle. Yet despite the pain, the psalmist is committed to keeping the conversation going. And I think this is our call as well. It's the anguish. It's the anguish. Let's move into the ask. Moving in, looking in verse three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Now three verbs are used here in these two verses. And the three verbs moving into the ask is this moment where, where the psalmist is saying, consider in other words, see, like, see what I'm going through. Consider my sort of plot in life right now. And would you please give an answer? So consider, answer. And then he says, give light. That I'm walking around as if in the darkness. I don't even know the next step to take. I'm that much in pain in my soul. This sort of meandering wilderness. And he's asking God to break in and respond and deliver. Now I want to bring up a graph which... I think kind of encapsulates where the psalmist takes us in these two verses. And there's this sort of thing that happens where you have this kind of anguish, right? And then you have this desired resolution, whatever that might look like. But then there's this thing right in the middle, this bubble, this question mark, where we kind of live in real time between the anguish in the resolution. I think this is a kind of meaningful wilderness of self-discovery. 
And some of you are there right now. We all eventually will be. And here's why this is significant. What you do, what you do in that space, in between, what you do in that space reveals whether or not your commitment to Jesus is really substantive or if it's all just been kind of like religious games and convenience when life is going well. It's a revealer for us. It's a teacher in so many ways of what really is the cry of my heart? Who really am I turning to? What really do I believe and whom do I believe? What I love about this is, is that the psalmist isn't in his yearning for breakthrough. Notice he's not hoping for five simple strategies for life management or like, you know, three tips for a better life now or like 10 practical ways of overcoming challenging obstacles. That's not what the psalmist is looking for here. The psalmist in a place of soul pain knows those things won't satisfy anymore. He's tried them, they didn't work. And the psalmist is moving to a place where he actually needs a breakthrough. I think the psalmist is beginning to demand, beginning to desire, beginning to seek the available presence of God in the midst of despair. That seems that the psalmist has come to the conclusion that the breakthrough I'm waiting for isn't gonna happen outside of the presence of God. And the fascinating thing about that is that, uh, well, how many of you have heard of the practice inner healing? Inner healing has begun to get some momentum again in our time. It's an older practice where you have a trusted guide who's um, sort of like trained to walk you through events in your past that caused wounds, that you're still kind of living through. You're still in bondage to. You haven't actually moved into freedom from, from the bondage that you had from wounds from your childhood or whatever that was. And what inner healing does is it teaches us that the gift of presence is more valuable than the removal of that pain. And, and that sounds kind of like clever and it sounds like, oh, that sounds right psychologically, but that's not really how it might work, AJ. But, but I think it is because what happens is God's presence has the power to redeem our pain, whether it's the pain of our past, the pain of our pres present, or pain that we will experience in the future. Now, here's what happens. The presence of God doesn't rewrite your history, but it does have the power to transform history. God is not the author of your brokenness, but God is the redeeming editor of it. And God longs to take your story and to graft it into something new, something beautiful, something beyond what you can pull off on your own. And why does pain exist? Oh, that's the age-old question, but we do know this. God's presence is available in it. And the odd thing is this. We find in that place that God's presence somehow mysteriously becomes our answer. I mean, isn't that why we gather here each week? Because God is alive, not dead. God is here, not distant. God brings hope, not despair. The call, the call in the ask is this to be faithful in our petition, to be faithful in whatever it is that you're just longing to see breakthrough, you're longing to see, see something happen, you're longing to see some relief, some resolution, some resurrection story through the cross that you're carrying. And here's what's interesting about that. Uh, there's a reason why it's called a longing, because it's long, right? 
long. But we'd rather have quick fixes. I know I would. I, I, we live in a time where we can't even like, look at one screen at a time. We, we need things to happen now, God. Why does it seem that you take time to be good? All of these cries that come out of our soul. And if you have a cry of your heart this season where you're just longing for God to act in a certain way, you know, maybe it's a relationship that's going south. Or maybe it's an overwhelming anxiety. Or maybe it's a diagnosis. Or maybe you're in those three or four days between the time you went to the doctor and you're waiting for that diagnosis. Those are some hard days. Those are some really long days. If there's a cry in your heart this season, don't quit on bringing it before God. Because somehow there is a resource even in the petition. May we seek and desire God's presence more than good and glib answers. Because I think God wants us to be bold. Not entitled, not prescriptive, that this is how it needs to look for me, God, this is how you have to show up, but bold. I don't think that the triune God, the creator of the universe, is sitting around saying, man, my creation's so needy. They're so insecure. I wish they would just leave me alone. We know God created us for fellowship, for relationship. We know that's the end of all things is this union that we're brought into with God and reigning with God forever. We know that's where resurrection ends. And I think, like when you look at Moses and he's saying to Moses, giving him the idea, giving him the vision of the people of Israel, of leading them out and where they're going to go and set up camp, that the Messiah would come through that lineage. As Moses is getting all of his directives, what does Moses say? He doesn't say, if you could give me like three ideas on how to like prescribe vision, that would be great. He says, God, if you don't go with me, if your presence isn't there through the midst of the struggle, I I can't do this. And what does God say? I'll do that. In fact, I I think what's underneath the text there is God saying, that's been my plan the whole time. I know you can't do this without me. I'm with you. We have an entire season of the church calendar called Advent where we lean into the reality that God is with us. We have a season of the church calendar called Pentecost which teaches us that God is in us. God longs to give his presence. So abide in your petition because there's resource there somehow in the longing. And last, the action The action, verse five and six. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, this is interesting. You round the corner from verse four and you hit into the verse five and the end of this. Notice this, nothing has changed in the psalmist's circumstance. Nothing has changed. There's no asterisk in the, in the Hebrew, where it takes you to another hidden text where it says, oh, by the way, and between verse four and five, everything changed. All's better now, milk and cookies, and so we can dance the night away, and now I can praise God. That's not what happens in the text. And yet the psalmist declares this, in the midst of that bubble, in the midst of that uncertainty, the psalmist says, I trusted, I shall rejoice, and I will sing. I will sing. I refuse to allow the circumstances of life to determine my worship. I think that is what the psalmist is leaning into. Now, 
At this point, in the context where I live in Manhattan, a lot of people will rise up and say, AJ, that sounds great, thanks for the little lecture here, but I would just say this. A skeptic might say, this sounds like some shallow optimism by the psalmist. This is just sort of naive, overly optimistic, I'm glad he's singing a song. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. I don't think this is a sort of shallow, optimistic worship set. I think it's a man who refuses to be seduced into unbelief because of circumstance. I think the psalmist is a worshiper who has resolved this, that the character of the eternal God is not tethered to the circumstance of your transient pain. That God's identity isn't sort of up for negotiation simply because we go through hard times. God is the inventor of resurrection. It's beautiful. God's idea, not ours. Beautiful, beautiful. It's been said that the decision to trust God's faithfulness in the midst of despair is the most powerful theological concept in all the Psalms. That you and I come from a very long lineage of perpetuas, a very long ancestry of brokenness and anxiety and despair, and yet a very, very long lineage of people who were faithful in praise. And this wasn't because they were shallow and overly optimistic and naive. It's because they knew that the future of all things is not death, but resurrection, is restoration, is renewal. And so the call for us in the action is to be faithful in praise. To be faithful in praise. To be faithful in our Petition, to be faithful in our praise, to be faithful in our pain. Listen, that's a lot of F's and P's. I worked really hard on that alliteration for you people. (laughs) Southern Baptist upbringing here. I want to end with this question. Where's Jesus in this psalm? I, I wondered where in Jesus' life this lamentation may have been appropriate. Saw in John 18, the writer tells us, and Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nonetheless, not my will but yours be done. See the release of control in that? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. I think if Jesus had sung a psalm in the garden, and he probably did, just before his betrayal, it would have been this one. It would have been Psalm 13. Because it was here that Jesus finds himself in a moment between anguish and resolution, not really knowing how this was all going to shake out. Soul pain to the point of sweating blood, 
and knowing that there is a cross for him to bear in the coming hours that's going to be heavy and it's going to be painful and it's going to be wounding and having to trust the mystery that God's presence, the Father's presence would meet him in that place. Now, why did Jesus have to go through all this pain, all this mystery, all this uncertainty? Here's what we know from our vantage point, from our version of the story 2,000 years later looking back. We know this much. It couldn't be because God didn't love him. Why do we go through pain where it's no longer superficial and the layers are peeled back and it pierces the soul? It can't be that God doesn't love us. I think it means that God is full of all kinds of surprises that end up resulting in eternal joy. We just have to trust the mystery. The biblical word for this is pistis, faith, trust, a verb, not just cognitive set of prepositions lodged somewhere in your head of what you believe doctrinally, though that's true, but a way in which you choose to be faithful because God is faithful, despite what you might be thinking because of your circumstance. Our staff, um, we meditated on this psalm a few weeks ago, and uh, I want to close by reading you the prayer of one of the women on our staff. Who I, I just, I have a staff. That they just, I don't even know why they let me teach. They're so beyond me in their spiritual maturity. It's staggering. Now, before I read this prayer, just a quick update on Stephanie's life. Seven years before she wrote this prayer a few weeks ago, uh, she was on her way to read scripture on her roof in New York, and she was using the fire ladder and she was reaching for the last rung and it slipped and she fell six floors onto the cement by the trash dump and lived she lost an eye she lost a finger and the doctors told us she would never walk praise god she regained her ability to walk here's what she said when meditating on this psalm with us a few weeks ago. And if this morning you can't find the words to pray to God, I think she would encourage you to borrow hers. I trust you. You've never placed a stone in my path that you did not plan a route around first. You've never left me at the bottom of the mountain, unequipped or alone. You never marked one day in my history without your faithfulness. Your loving kindness floods my heart. Indeed, you have been good to me. I pray that this season and for years to come that Perimeter Church, just like the long lineage of our Christian ancestry from whence we've come, would be found by God to be faithful in pain to be faithful in petition, and to be faithful in praise. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for, um, for the gift of community. You've given us one another to walk through these seasons, and I pray that 
we would be the church, that we wouldn't just attend church one day of the week, that even now, Lord, for those of us that aren't in seasons of lament, that you would put someone into our minds, sear their name into our heart, that we would even take response from here to email, to call, to encourage, to stand with, to be in solidarity with, Lord. So we thank you for the gift of one another, and I thank you for the gift of this church to this city. I pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come and your will be done. And I ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.